Good afternoon. It's a privilege to be here with you and to share from God's Word. It's good to rub shoulders and to fellowship and to meet brothers and sisters from other parts of the country. And uh, I thank Hollywood Bible Chapel, Boulevard Bible Chapel, all the folks from down in, in South Florida for all the work they've done. And great to see brothers and sisters. 50% of those in this audience are from, are from Florida, somewhere in Florida, elders, leaders, young men, uh, laboring, working uh, in assemblies and Lord's work in some way, in some capacity uh, in, in Florida. So it's great to have each one of you here. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Book of Ezekiel chapter 37. We are thinking about great revivals or great awakenings of Scripture. And we will do that, but I want to just emphasize the great need there is for revival. Our assemblies need revival. We need revival. Uh, as has been said, local churches need revival. We live in a day where many, evangel many evangelical churches, many Baptist churches, many Bible churches, uh, I'm not sure how much you rub shoulders with local pastors and local spiritual leaders, uh, but if you talk to them, and you'll find they have, their numbers are dwindling. It's not a, a malady that, that uh, we experience exclusively. I know Baptist churches in our area that have lost in the last couple of years, lost many people, just staying home. And those churches need revival. Christian schools need revival. And so we need, we need this subject today. I have to say that I have been a, a, a little, little student of revival for about 30 years I have, a, I don't know, maybe 15 books in my library. Some of the ones I mentioned are from my library. And since my days with Operation Mobilization, even before that, um, I've had an interest in, in revival and the history of revival and um, uh, how God has used revival and what are some of the components of revival and who are the same, some leaders in revival. And uh, I wrote a senior paper in college uh, on revival in a secular college, it was revival of among the Jesus people, the hippies that got saved that our brother talked about, and um, read books, secular books about this phenomenon, and um, and I was a part of that phenomenon a little bit. I was 14 years old, raised in an exclusive assembly in New Jersey, and my sister went to college and she met some. Hippies. My sister was a hippie. If you had met my sister, you would, you would have taken like two or three looks at her. When she went to high school, she would go to the local stationery store and get the largest gold and silver stars you would put on those papers. She got 100%. She would take those and lick them and put them all in her hair. She would go to the flea market and get the ugliest, oldest dress she could find. Her mother wouldn't let her go to school that way, so she put it in her book bag and took it to school and then changed when she got there. Uh, she was the hippie, you know, she was number one hippie in her high school. But they were getting saved. And she was saved before. They saved at eight years old. And she began to bring them to our Bible study Thursday night at our home. My father was the Bible teacher. He, uh, he had gone to Columbia Bible College. He knew the Bible. And uh, he began to teach. And it was during the time, 1969, I was 14 years old. And there were hundreds and hundreds and thousands of young people in New Jersey. And it was a, a, a uh, national phenomenon. It was an international phenomenon of hippies and drug addicts and 
people being saved, and they even got saved in exclusive brethren assemblies uh, like ours. I remember clearly as a 14-year-old boy having 75, 80 people in a Bible study in our home. Our living room was filled. Our stairs, they were sitting on the stairs in the kitchen, uh, in the basement, down the stairs, on the porch, everywhere being saved. We'd have baptisms of 25 and 30 people being baptized. In our exclusive brethren assembly, we had two contemporary music groups. And I've kept a couple of tapes. I was going to bring a tape and play for you, but I decided, I decided not to waste the time in that. But, uh, but we had the most unorthodox assembly. This group of hippies began to search the scriptures. I don't know how should they gather, how should they meet. And my sister guiding a little bit. And my father, guiding, decided to search out, go to all the churches, which would be the right church, with their long hair and their dress and their stars in her hair. They visited all the different assemblies. They even went to Cedarcroft, an hour from us, Cedarcroft Bible Chapel, and Baptist churches and Methodist churches and charismatic churches. And they decided they didn't like any of those churches. So they came to my father and said, can we use your garage to start a new church? Well, our exclusive brethren, we met in the living room, one wall between us. And they emptied out all the bicycles and, and they painted the floor and put a big cross on it and one way to Jesus posters on the wall, and they met there. We went outside after we met on the, on the front lawn. <laughs> neighbors, I have no idea what the neighbors thought. <laughs> no idea. And... Uh, Pretty soon we would talk, and pretty soon they said, you know, why don't we just meet with you? Why don't we just meet with you? And so that little assembly in our house, we met there, then we met in the firehouse, and then we met for probably 10 years and had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people being saved. I don't know where they went and where they are today. I really don't know. But I saw a little bit of revival of people getting saved, coming to Bible studies, hunger and thirst for Scripture. And I believe it'd be wonderful. And I began to read and think about Scripture and think about revival. It'd be wonderful to have something like that again. And to be honest, I haven't ever seen that like that again. But I know, I know God's able to do that again. And is it something that we do? Do we have to pray hard enough? Do we have to fast hard enough? I have fasted. I have been days of prayer. And I've been with Operation Mobilization where we prayed all night long. I've been in times we prayed and fasted for a weekend uh, for God to do something. I've been in with believers on our knees, with little groups praying and seeking God. I've, I've, been, I've, I've done those things, and I've sought the Lord, but I still haven't seen that kind of thing again. And I know it happens different places in the world. I know it still happens. And, uh, and we still continue to pray and seek and look to the Lord for him to do what he desires to do in our midst. But one of the things that I'd like to talk about today, the message this afternoon is called The Critical Need for Faith. I think that's the title. But I want to think about the subject and retitle our subject as The Critical Need for the Word of God in Revival. Critical need. I want to suggest that there, you cannot have a revival without the Word of God being absolutely central. Amen. Absolutely central. And we will look through scripture, look at revivals, and everyone will look at, we will see the word of God as being absolutely central. 
Here we have in Ezekiel chapter 37, first couple of verses, we have a situation about a valley full of dead bones, which are individuals, which is the nation of Israel. And we find that the Spirit of God, and we find that God is putting a burden, coming and seeking Ezekiel, putting a burden on his heart, putting the hand of God upon Ezekiel. And I think for a revival to take place, and usually when a revival does take place, the Lord puts his hand on an individual, maybe a number of individuals who are praying or leading or preaching, a number of individuals, or sometimes one individual. Evan Roberts in the Wales, the revival in Wales in uh, 1904, was one individual who the Lord laid his hand upon. The Apostle Paul or Peter, the day of Pentecost, an individual. But here we have Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was upon me, carried me out in the spirit of the Lord, and put me down in the midst of the valley of dry bones. You know, I think for revival to take place, uh, we have to be willing to be put in the place of the valley of dry bones. And we have to get out of our chapels, and we've got to get out of our uh, Bible studies with believers, just believers sometimes. It's good to be with them. I'm not saying totally, but we have to get out among your neighbors, unsaved people, among those that are drinking and those that are doing everything that you don't want to do. You don't want them to come to your house maybe and they don't want them to do the things that they might do and the influence they may have, their kids upon your kids. And you wrestle with all those things. But you've got to get in the valley of dry bones if you're going to have revival. You have to, as it says in verse 2, the Lord not only gets you into the valley of dry bones, but he makes you get real near. He causes you to walk about it, walk between them, get real near, get real down and look real close at this valley of dry bones. No interest, no spiritual life, dead, absolutely dead. And I differ from my brother a little bit that spoke this morning. Dead bones can hear. Dead bones can be preached to. Dead, spiritually dead, men and women and young people in this world, we can preach to. And they will hear the word of the Lord. Dead people can hear through the power and the ministry of the word of God in their lives. And that's what we have here. The dead, spiritually dead, we're told to go, Ezekiel, go and preach to them. We are told five times, I believe, in verses 1 through 13, to prophesy to preach the word. Go to these bones that you've walked around and you've gotten a burden, a burden for them. I was saved in college. I was saved when I was a junior in college. I wasn't saved during those times of revival or, or spiritual awakening when I was 14. I was saved when I was 22 in college. I was saved through intervarsity. I was saved through reading the Bible and intervarsity. But I remember... I remember praying to the Lord and said, Lord, give me a burden for the lost. Give me a burden for the lost in my college. Give me a real burden so strong that you'll just lead me to speak to people. I won't be shy. I won't, I won't hold back that I'll reach out and give all that I have uh, to reach those on my college campus. So I prayed that. You know, when you pray a prayer like that and you mean it, you better watch out. Because the Lord is going to do something to give you that burden. 
It's not going to sweep over you, I don't think. It's not just going to kind of bring it down and kind of fill your heart with this burden. It's going to do something. So I said, okay. So I began, for whatever reason, it was my natural bend, but go early to the library to do some work. The library was right next to what we called the pub area and the commons area at the college I went to in New Jersey. And as I went there early in the morning, when as soon as it was open, I saw people drunk laying on the floor, sleeping on the couches, uh, laying near, we had a little pond, laying near a pond. We had a handicapped student in his wheelchair, roll his wheelchair into the pond, slept there halfway into the pond, halfway on the ground. And I would see this Saturday morning, usually the weekend, Saturday morning, Friday nights, and the Lord began to burden my heart and I began to preach. I began to share. We had a little intervarsity group, small group, but the Lord began to move and began to work. Look at verse 4. He says, Prophesy unto these bones. Say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Again, down in verse, verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, verse 9, and he said, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, O son of man, prophesy. The word means preach, preach the word of God. And he says in verse 4, he says to Ezekiel, God comes, lays his hand and speaks to Ezekiel and says to Ezekiel these words, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And whenever God says that to us, we've got to, and you think it's impossible. We answer that question like Ezekiel answered it. O Lord, thou knowest. I think he didn't believe it. I think the word impossible was written all over these dead bones. But Ezekiel believed. He preached. He preached the word of the Lord. I want to think with you a little bit about the word, preaching the word, the use of the word, the power of the word, what we need to understand about the word of God uh, as we think about revival. So turn with me for a moment um, to the New Testament, to uh, Matthew 13. Matthew 13. A lot of times we say, uh, in secular society, we say seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. But in spiritual things, we should never say that. In spiritual things, we should say it differently. Spiritual things, we should say believing is seeing. Believing is transforming our lives when we believe the word of God. When we believe the word of God, something is going to change in us. We're going to be different people when we believe the word of God. Believing is life transforming. We don't just say, Lord, I want to have my life changed, and then I'll believe the Lord, maybe. I'll try to believe, and I'll pray about believing. I think it's the other way around. As we come believing. As believers wanting revival, we come believing. Look with me at Mark chapter 13. Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew 13. And look with me at verse, at verse 15. For this people, speaking of the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders, this people, he says, these people, I'm sorry, verse 14. He says, by hearing, you shall hear. And he goes on to say, and shall not understand. Seeing, 
you shall not and, 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 uh, and I'm sorry, you shall not hear, and by seeing you shall see and not perceive. So he says here, by hearing you shall hear, by seeing you shall see, by seeing by faith you will see. You will see what God wants. You will see and have the burden that God might have for you, the direction God would have you to go. By hearing, you will hear. By, by, by faith, hearing, it will be a life-transforming a life experience with God. But look what happens in verse 15. But that didn't happen. There's a reason why it didn't happen. It's because they didn't have faith. Their hearts were hard. Hard. Their hearts were not burdened. Their hearts were not believing. There was no faith. But this people's heart has become gross. Their ears are dull. Their eyes they have closed. Lest any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and they should understand and, I'm going to kind of improvise here, and have their lives transformed by the power of God's work in their lives. How do we have our lives transformed? I believe is by believing, coming to the Word of God, believing, being responsive as we read the Word of God. When we read the Word of God and He says something to our hearts, George Werwer used to say we have a tendency to hear and not to act, to feel and not to move and not to act. If we keep on hearing and moving and, 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 and not acting, someday we'll be unable to act. That's what happened here. If your ears, your eyes are closed... They won't see. They won't hear. Lest any time they should be healed. Lest any time. Did God sovereignly close their eyes and close their hearts? That they were a dull, gross, not hearing, not believing, disobeying, rejecting God, rejecting people? No. They closed their eyes. That God would not work in their hearts and their lives. Turn with me to Luke chapter, Luke chapter um, 5. I think one of the needs about the Word of God as we look at revival and the Word of God, I think one of the great needs we have is to be responsive. Say, yes, Lord. When we hear the Word of God, I love meeting, meeting people, new believers, sometimes believers who love the Lord, and you preach them a message, and they say, how do I do that? I want to do that. How do I do it? We had Bob, Bob Brown speak at our chapel this Sunday. He spoke about evangelism. The Kennedy method. And one of our sisters, how do you do that? I want to do that. I want to reach people for the Lord. How do I do that? And it was beautiful at our picnic. Instead of eating, instead of eating whatever we had, they were sitting there with the Bible open and saying, I want to do that. Here in chapter 5, chapter 5 of Luke, here we have the Lord coming to Peter. Peter had apparently since the day he called and went back to fishing. He goes later in the Gospels back to fishing, but apparently here he goes back as well. Luke 5. And the Lord comes to him. He says, Simon, Simon says, launch out into the deep. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Launch. Launch out to the deep. The deep is somewhere where you don't where you don't like to go. Not comfortable. You're not sure which way to go, how to do it. You don't know what's gonna what the unexpected is gonna take place. Launch by faith. Launch by 
launch out into the deep. And let down your nets for a draught. What does Peter say? I love Peter's answer. Launch out into the deep. And Peter says, Master, we have toiled all night and we have caught nothing. But I like his answer. Nevertheless, at thy word, we will let down the net. You know, we need to be that kind of people. That kind of people. Believing people. Responsive people. As the word of God comes to us, we say, yes, Lord, I'm going to follow that word. I am going to obey that word. And by obeying it, our lives are empowered and transformed. We see something of the Lord working in our lives. You'll see people say, we may not see revival like I saw at 14. We may not see revival that like Brother Jack Fish saw when he was in high school. But you'll see the Lord do things that you love to see, that you want to see. You see God change lives may change your life, but he'll change other lives too. I want to give you a definition of, um, of revival from one of those books I mentioned. Roy Hessian. Revival is the life of the Lord Jesus Christ poured into human hearts. Ian Murray says it's the work of God carried with greater speed and swiftness. And there are often instances of sudden conversions at such a time. So it is in some degree whenever there is an extraordinary pouring out of the Spirit of God, more so in proportion. And he says to the great, he calls them effusions, great revival. David Long says it is, comes about with bold preaching and biblical preaching and clarity where there's conversions of souls. I want to look at a number of places where we see revival, or we see the word of God. We saw it in Ezekiel chapter chapter 37. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Book of Acts chapter 2. I want to suggest, as I have, we cannot have revival without a powerful believing in the preaching and the preeminence of the word of God. And I want to suggest, too, as I have read some of this literature over the years, Unfortunately, there is a lack, there is omission, and there is a lack of emphasis of the, ne- of the necessity of the Word of God uh, in our lives and the use of the Word of God in, in revival. There's an omission of it. There's a lack of emphasis for it. And I think the reason is this. They believe that the Word of God in doctrine and the belief in the Word of God somehow stifles the free movement and liberty of the Holy Spirit to produce revival. The word of God is like a shackle. The word of God is chains on the spirit of God. And I will suggest that's absolutely the farthest thing from the truth. When we go through, we'll look at a number of revivals, and every time the word of God is believed and preached and used powerfully. And there's great changes that take place. Here in Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Spirit moving of the Spirit of God in a wonderful way. We see the Spirit of God moving and working. We see salvation of souls in chapter 2. If we go down a little bit in our chapter, in chapter 2, we see Peter. I love what it says about Peter. That uh, in verse 14, Peter standing up with the 11. I think he was just taking his turn. And all of the 11 eventually preached. We don't have all their message. They all stood up. 
And I think they all preach. But Peter preaches first. These men are not drunk. It's the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning. And he begins to preach about the book of Joel and about how God sovereignly would bring revival and bring a great, a great ingathering of souls. And we find at the end of this chapter, verse 41, after he had preached, those that gladly received the word, the gospel was preached, the word was preached, the word was believed. Peter was uh, kind of vacillating and not as strong as we like to see him in the end of the, at the end of the gospels. But we see him a different person, believing, acting. Those that gladly received the word were baptized the same day, about 3,000 souls. Chapter 3, Peter and John went up to pray in the temple about the ninth hour. I like to think it's the same day. Nine o'clock in the morning, you see a message. Three o'clock in the afternoon, another message. And then as we go to chapter 4, Chapter 4 and verse 3. It's eventide, evening. The day of Pentecost takes place, I think, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4. And chapter 4 says it's evening now, and many of them who heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. Just the men were 5,000. Maybe the women and the other ones that were there, maybe 15,000. Earlier it says 3,000. Another message was preached, more were saved, and more were saved. Ultimately, 10 or 15 or 12, whatever the number was, saved. Preaching, messages, preaching the word over and over again. The word of God was central. The word of God was important. Turn with me to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see revival over and over again. In the days of Jonah, chapter 3, after Jonah fled, came back. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of God came to Jonah a second time. And what does he say? He says, preach the preaching that I bid thee. Preach the message that I gave you to preach and preach with all your heart. Believe it. Pour yourself into it. Give yourself to it. And great revival from the youngest all the way to the highest, the rulers and the leaders, the political leaders, royalty, down to the children. Great revival, repentance. We see over and over again great revivals in the Old Testament. We see revivals in the days of Nehemiah. We see revival in the days of Josiah. We see revival in the days of Hezekiah. It says about Josiah so beautifully in, in chapter 2 Chronicles 34, 27. It says, when the word of God was found in the rubble there in the temple as they dug through and, clean, and, and cleansed it, they found the word of God. It was red, and it broke his heart. And it says this, because your heart was tender, and you tore your clothing, these, all, these, all these judgments that are in the book will not come upon the people of God. But I love that phrase. It's like Peter. Nevertheless, at thy word, we will let down the nets. Josiah, because your heart was tender, and wept when you heard the words of this book. Well, let's go over to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm going to close in the last 15 minutes with, or so with looking at a number of revivals in the Old Testament. And looking at them, and there's three themes that I want to look at in each of these revivals.
And um, the first theme is revival produces workers. Revival produces servants. Revival produces those who pour their lives into what God wants them to pour their lives into. Revivals have produced churches and institutes, Bible study institutes and Bible colleges and hospitals and mission stations and the missionary movement and writing and, and songwriting and hymn writing and revival and worship. Revival brings to pass certain things, not just the salvation of souls. Revival brings a, a, a transformation in our world and especially in our lives. Believers who are not so interested in serving the Lord become, become interested. And they pour their lives into service to God. Here in chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah coming back to Jerusalem. In chapter 3, we begin to see them working on the wall. And I want to look at a couple of things about how they worked on the wall. And look at some of the servants we find laboring and working on this wall. We find in verse 1, chapter 3 of Nehemiah, Elisha, the high priest, working on the wall. You find later a man named Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Hakos. Who is he? Who is Merimoth? We'll come back to him. The Tekoahites, those who live just beyond Jericho. A whole number of them come to work on the wall. It's not their city. It's not where they live. But revival has taken place and the Lord's burden in their hearts and I said, this, we're in this. We're going to work here too. We find a little bit later, down in verse 8, goldsmiths, those who work with delicate things with their fingers, making beautiful necklaces or earrings or jewelry. or There they are, taking up mortar and bricks and saws and chisels and whatever they had to take up, working on the wall. Perfumers, those who squeeze out wonderful scents out of flower petals. There they are on the wall. The Lord burdened their hearts to be there. Look down at verse 12. Halohesh, the son of a ruler of the half part of Jerusalem, he's working on the wall. He could have sent his servants, but he's there. Not only is he there, look at who else is there. He brought his daughters to work. It was bring your daughter to work day uh, on that particular day. Daughters, rulers, perfumers, goldsmiths, priests working on the wall, all working, all pouring their lives into it. 52 days, the wall is built. Keep your finger there and go with me to Romans chapter 12. What does our church need to look like? What is our local gathering of believers, the local assembly? What does it need to look like for revival? We're going to go right back to, uh, to Nehemiah, but chapter 12. It's a chapter about spiritual gifts the functioning within the local assembly, the way it should function. Romans chapter 12. We have four chapters in the New Testament about spiritual gifts, two fours and two twelves, right? Uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4. But none of them tell us what we read here. Here they tell us the character, I think, of what the local assembly should be like for God to work powerfully, and wonderfully and marvelously like he should work. Four principles that I think are essential. And we see those four principles in Nehemiah chapter 3. What is the first principle? Verse 3, humility. Humility. If there's any one thing that has destroyed a lot of 
missionary organizations and missionary relationships and Christian relationships and local church situations is pride. Pride. He says, as he speaks about spiritual gifts and the local church, he says, I say to every man, woman, and child, old person and young person, that's my little paraphrase, every man that is among you, he should not think more highly of himself, more highly than he ought, but he ought to think soberly. Local church. First thing, it's humility. Next thing he talks about is unity. Look with me down a little further. Verse 5, so we being many are one body in Christ, every one members one of another. You know, Nehemiah believed that. There's no body of Christ and no head in the Old Testament, but he believed in the principle of the one body, that there was unity, that they were a part of every, everyone was a part of each other. That perfumer and that daughter and that half the son of the ruler of half of Jerusalem, they're all part of the one body. I say sometimes in our local assembly, we cannot get on without you. You might be an older person, a younger person, a teenager. You may be 12 years old. We can't get on without you. You might be a grandmother. You might be 96 years old, but we can't get on in this local assembly without you doing what God wants you to do in this local church. You are absolutely essential. If you're missed, if you're not here, we miss you. If you're not doing what God wants you to do, we miss you. You're not using the gifts that you are, God wants you to use in our midst and in the body of Christ. We miss you. He says also there's something else. And that is verse 4. Diversity. Praise the Lord for diversity. I couldn't make black beans and rice if you walked me through the steps one by one, but somebody here did that. I can't fix the toilet too well. I can't fix the air conditioner too well. I can't arrange chapel dinners too well. But somebody can. Thank the Lord for diversity. Look what he says here, verse 4. For as many, for we have many members in one body, and all the members have not the same office. Now, I'm reading from the King James, and when we see the word office, it's the word work. About elders, he says... It's a good thing when a man desires the work of the office of an elder. It's the work of an elder. He says here in verse 4, we are many members, but we don't all have the same work. Praise the Lord for those who preach the gospel, teach the word of God. Praise the Lord for those who have an apologetic kind of teaching ministry in our midst. Praise the Lord for those who have a prophetic ministry. Praise the Lord for those who have a discerning ministry like Dave Hunt. Praise the Lord for those who have a missionary emphasis in the diversity of their teaching. Praise the Lord they have a burden to pray and to lead others and motivate others to pray. Thank the Lord for those who open their homes and have a Bible study with one person. Diversity. If we don't have everyone doing what God wanted them to do. And then we have harmony. Verses 6, 7, and 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace of God. If you have the gift of prophecy, prophesy according to the measure of faith that you have. If you have the gift of teaching, teach according to the measure of faith that you have. If you have the gift of giving, he says here, do it with liberality. Do it to the measure that God has given you to do that. 
teaching, exhort, exhortation, showing mercy with cheerfulness. We all have our gift and we do it in harmony with every other gift in the body of Christ. Now let's turn back to uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. That's what happens here. 52 days, the wall is built. They're worshiping, they're rejoicing, they're singing, they're praying. The priests are together, Nehemiah is together, the people are together, the children are together. We read in chapter 12, verse 43, they sang and there was great worship and great singing and great Great rejoicing because of what God had, did, had, had done. Look in this chapter. Look with me at Merimoth, verse 4. Praise, the God, praise God for the word of God, that if we scratch and dig below the surface, we will get great, great morsels and nuggets of truth. I had a brother come one time, and someone else said he was a good brother, but, and it was an unkind comment. But he said he is the master of the obvious. It was an unkind comment. A little bit of truth to it. But we need people who can dig. Who was Merimoth? Was he the head of all the high priests? Who was he? He was the son of Urijah, the son of Hakos. But who was he? I'll tell you who he was, as far as I know. He was a humble man. He was a very humble man. Turn with me. Keep your finger there. I'll return to Ezra chapter 8. You know, when Ezra came back from Babylon with the vessels the vessels of the temple for worship were talents of gold and talents of silver and polished, highly polished basins of bronze, very expensive, very valuable, very costly. And he gave them into the hands of 12, chapter 8, uh, verse of, of uh, Ezra, gave into the hands of 12 priests who were to carry these items back. We come down and we ask ourselves, well, who was the one? Who would they give that? Who would weigh out those vessels? Who would weigh out the talents of silver, the talents of gold, and the, the basins of bronze? Who would, be, who would they stand before? Who would be the most important person of all Jerusalem? Probably, right? But look in chapter 8, in verse uh, chapter 8 of, of Ezra. I believe it's verse, uh, verse 32. We came to Jerusalem and abode there three days. And the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed out in the house of our God into the hand of Merimoth, the son of Erijah, the son of Hakos. You know, back in Nehemiah chapter 3, which just thrills my heart, didn't say a word about him, who he was. Doesn't say a word about Nehemiah in this chapter, but I'm sure he was there. Humility. But look at this man. Merimoth. Merimoth, you would have loved to have him in your local assembly. And hopefully you'll receive a lot of Merimoths that would come to your assembly. Look with me at this chapter. Look at verse 21. You know, there are four people in this chapter that went to Nehemiah and said to Nehemiah, these beautiful words that elders and leaders love to hear in the local church, is there anything else I can do? Ever hear those words? We love to hear those words. How can I, we were setting up the books last night. Someone came up to me. How can I help you? Beautiful words. Look at Merimoth, the head, the chief, the one who counted all the most costly gold and silver. 
Look at him in verse 21. And after him, 44 times you have this word after him, these sections along the wall. And after him repaired Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Hecos, what? Another portion. He went to Nehemiah and said, Nehemiah, is there anything else I can do? The Tokoahites went to Nehemiah and said, Nehemiah, is there anything else I can do? Meshullam went to Nehemiah and said, is there anything else I can do? Humility, harmony, laboring together. Why? Because there was revival and something was transformed in their hearts. I'm going to go a little bit longer, just a little bit longer. Turn with me to Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter 30. changes our lives. Revival changes our lives, our attitudes, our ambitions, our thoughts, everything about us, everything we do. Here in chapter 30, we have the story of Hezekiah. It's a wonderful study. We're going to take five minutes and look at a big chunk of his life in five minutes. It says of, Neo, it says of Hezekiah in 1 Kings 18, before him there was no king like him, and after him there was no king like him after after him. Greatest king. Greater than David. Word of God says the greatest king that ever lived in Jerusalem. Greatest king. He comes and rules. Who was his father? His father was an ungodly king, Ahaz. Ungodly as they come. He took the priest and he built a pagan temple. He offered human sacrifices of his own son there on the altar. He was so ungodly that God raised up the southern the northern kingdom of Israel, to come and discipline him. The ungodly northern kingdom and tribes who are pagan idolaters to come down to the southern kingdom and discipline Ahaz. But, but Hezekiah becomes king. He was a godly king. He had a heart for God and brought about revival. But that revival brought about something that's very important, and that is Unity. I think when revival takes place, greater unity takes place. This is a fantastic chapter on unity. And we're going to look at it and then we're going to close. Chapter 30, verse 1. Chapter 29 is about how Nehemiah began to bring reform so the priests and the Levites and all those in Jerusalem were in position to celebrate the Passover and to worship God as they should. And then it came time to celebrate the Passover. And what takes place? Hezekiah says, we need to do it according to the word of God. We need to do it right. We need to do it honoring to God and glorifying to God. And so in verse 5 it says, he says, we should make a, a proclamation and decree to all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that they should come and celebrate the Passover. For they had not done so for a long time. In the way it was written, the word of God motivated him to do what was right, to glorify God in the right way, honor God in the right way. I reject the idea that revival is led by the spirit of God and the word of God and the teaching of the word of God and the doctrine of the word of God are shackles and chains that somehow stop and, 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 uh, and bring an end to revival that begins. I think it's a motivation. I think it is a, 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 a stirring and moving men to doing greater things for God, the way God wants it, to be, wants it to be done. But look what happens in chapter 30, verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel 
and Judah and wrote letters. And it says this. And he wrote letters especially to Ephraim and Manasseh. All Israel is, Ephraim and Manasseh is in all Israel. But why does he mention them twice? Well, that's where the center of golden calf pagan worship of Baal took place. In Bethel, in Ephraim, and in Dan. And he says, especially I want you to come. You pagan idolaters, you who have been moved away from God, I want you to come back. And then he sends letters. He sends couriers. Look down with me at verse 10. He sends couriers. We actually have the letter that the couriers carry to this chapter. Verse 7, 8, and 9. What would they do when they got those letters? The post passed from city to city through Ephraim and Manasseh. They left them to scorn and they mocked them. But they kept on going. But verse 11. Nevertheless, God was working, and God humbled some of them. They humbled themselves, and they came to Jerusalem. But the Lord had to work in the lives of the southern kingdom, too. They weren't so happy about the northern tribes coming and celebrating the Passover. Chapter 12, verse 12. Judah and the hand of the Lord gave to them one heart to worship the Lord. Now, why was it so hard? Turn with me to chapter 27 for a minute. Why was it so hard to worship together? You know, unity is hard. Brother, sister, says things, does things that are heart-rending to your children. They've done things, said things that are very difficult. Look what happened. Look what happened by the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. Verse 5 of chapter 27 of Chronicles. They smote them with a great slaughter. The northern kingdom came to the southern kingdom, slaughtered them with a great slaughter. Pekah, the son of Ramila, verse 6. Slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, all valiant men, brothers and sisters of those in the southern kingdom. 120,000 in one day, all valiant men. But look at the next verse. Zikri, mighty man of Ephraim, slew Messiah, the king's son, the brother to Hezekiah, was killed by the northern tribes. And then also the governor was killed next to the king in line. And then in verse 8, and the children of Israel, the northern tribes, came to the southern territory and took away captive 120, I'm sorry, 200,000 women, sons, and daughters as slaves to the northern tribes. You have a problem with your brother or sister? Well, you haven't seen anything like they saw. And what does Hezekiah say? In revival, I believe, led by the Spirit of God, God transforming and changing that people. He says, we need those brothers and sisters to worship with us. We need them. We cannot do without them because the way to worship is as one people. We have not done it together in such a long time as it was written. And they come together and they worship. They had not been ceremonial cleansed, uh, cleansed to be able to worship. And the priests and Levites come and say to those northern tribe people, you can't worship here. 
You're not, you're not in the proper condition, Hezekiah says. Then in verse 19, O Lord, O good Lord, pardon every one of them who seeks, who has prepared his heart to seek the Lord. And the Lord thought it was good and pardoned them and cleansed them. Verse 27, and there was worship. This worship was so pleasing to the Lord, the priest and the Levites arose and blessed the people and the voice was heard and their prayer came up into his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven itself. Revival. Worship. Unity was hard. Worship was sweet. But look at one last thing. The next verse, chapter 31, verse 1. After it was all done, seven more days after the Passover, it was so wondrous, so beautiful. Seven more days they... They continued on. Then after those days, the northern tribes went back. What did they do when they went back? Did they go back to their old way of life? No. No, when they went back, they went into Benjamin. They went to Ephraim and Manasseh. All these ones who had been and utterly destroyed all the idols. And all the places of false worship. Then all the children of Israel returned, every man to his own possession in his own cities. Revival changes our lives. But essential in revival is the word, the word of God. And so we're going to close. Sorry for going over time. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time this afternoon. And Father, we would pray that revival would change us. Father, we would be like, like Peter. Nevertheless, at thy word, we will let down the nets. We'll be like Josiah, because your heart was tender and you wept. I'll keep back this judgment. We pray, Father, that you will lead us and you'll guide us and you will transform us and change us. We will see a measure, a measure of the sweetness of revival in our midst. And so we pray this in Jesus' name.